0: his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out, and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these, first Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Well, good morning and welcome to St. Bart's. Uh, My name is Chris Myers. I'm one of the priests here. Uh, As you may may know, our rector, Dave Larley, is on sabbatical, and that is all going swimmingly. Uh, So continue to pray for him and his family. It's my pleasure today uh, to introduce the reverend canon patrick slabs he can tell you what a canon is he is uh, on staff at the cathedral church of saint luke and saint paul in charleston south carolina but none of that is as important as the fact that he's been my friend for 17 years <clears throat> and my brother-in-law for 14. <laughs> so quite lucky i don't know how my in-laws ended up with two anglican priests with their family you can pray for them for that as well um but i am With the opportunity to bring people in, Patrick was one of the first people that came to my mind of just wanting to have him come and share with us and so you can meet him and uh, glean from his wisdom. So, I'm gonna invite Patrick up and pray for him. Thanks Chris. Can I pray for you? Yes, please. Okay, Lord, I thank you for Patrick. I thank you for bringing him here. I thank you for um, the friend that he's been to me, the wise voice of my life, um, and just all the fun and amazing things we've been able to do together. Um, I pray that you would bless him as he brings us the word, and that we could receive what it is that you have for us through him. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Thanks, Chris. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. I've been an Anglican priest for eight years, and I've been in this Anglican world, this crazy Anglican world for the past 12, and I cannot, in fact, tell you what a canon is, even though I am one, (laughs) ostensibly. It's great to be with you this morning. As I said, I've been in this world for a while, but in fact, the first ever Anglican church that I visited was here in Dallas, Fort Worth, Palm Sunday, 2011, at your mother church, All Saints. First time experiencing Anglican worship. And in fact, the first priest that I ever got to know well was your founding rector, Jay Wright. Chris is a a dear friend, brother-in-law, It's good to be with you this morning. Thanks for having me. And I've loved cheering you on from afar. I've I've, I've been kind of in conversation with Chris and with Jay as this church was founded from the very beginning when y'all were just All Saints East Dallas and now that you're uh, St. Bart's and just from Charleston, from establishment Anglicanism out on the East Coast, just know that we are cheering you Western Anglicans on, planting churches, pioneering. It's also good for me to be home uh, I am a native Texan. I grew up in the flatlands. Some people would say the Godforsaken flatlands of the Panhandle. But I'm glad to be here. It was in West Texas, in fact, that Cormac McCarthy, the novelist who just passed away this past week, was looking over the lights of El Paso and Juarez, Mexico, that he conceived the ideas that would later become his Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Road. And just in case you've not read The Road, it's a story of a father and a son who find themselves struggling for survival in this post-apocalyptic world. And as they journey, the father is committed to modeling for his son how to survive, training him in all of the things that he will need should there come a day when he will not be with him. More than that, the father is committed to training his son to maintain his humanity. To be one of the good guys, as they say in the book, in the midst of a time of chaos, in the midst of a time of death. And so in this book, if you've read it, you know that the image of fire becomes very important. And obviously fire can mean a lot of things. But here it means to be something like light in the midst of dark places and hope in the midst of death. Light becomes the reason that they are to endure. And so the father is training his son, he says, to carry the fire. And this is a bit of spoiler alert, but you've had like 20 years to read it, so I'm not gonna apologize. Comes to the end of the book and it becomes clear that the son will have to go on alone. The father will not survive. And the son says to his father, I want to be with you. You can't, the dad says. Please, you can't. You have to carry the fire. I don't know how to. Yes, you do. Is the fire real? The fire? Yes, it is. Where is it? The son asks. I don't know where it is. Yes, you do. It's inside you. It always was there. I can see it. It is a beautiful and a gut-wrenching commission to go on, to carry the fire. In the life of the church, we find ourselves in a season very much like that. Not as sad and dark maybe, still dark, but more hopeful. We've spent the past six months journeying through the life of Christ from the expectations of Advent, to his birth at Christmas, to his life, to his death, to his resurrection to his ascension and just a few weeks ago at pentecost the fire of the holy spirit fell upon the church we remember it as the birth of the church and so for the next six months we are tasked as those who are called to carry the fire jesus sends us out to our neighbors into our world to follow him to be present with this world to love and to serve And so today's gospel lesson that you just heard read is this story of Jesus passing off that mission. It's the most detailed instructions he gives in the gospel of Matthew for what his mission looks like in the world and what it means, therefore, for the apostles and for the heirs of the apostles, for us. And so I don't know if you guys have Bibles, but if you do or you want to pull it up on your phone, I encourage you to turn to Matthew 9. We'll spend our time there, and I think it's helpful oftentimes for you to be just able to look at the text and kind of know where we are and how we are progressing through this. And as you look for that reference, I just want to remind you a couple things about Matthew. The first is that Matthew was far and away the favorite gospel of the early church. It was the most widely read, the most widely preached, the most widely taught. And that is not hard to see why because Matthew takes great pains to connect the story of the people of Israel with a story of Jesus as the Messiah. And in today's reading, we see this mission. Jesus up to this point in the gospel is the one who is on mission. He's the one sent from God to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and he's teaching and he's healing. And yet here, the mission becomes transferred to his followers, to his apostles. And so as he does that, Matthew gives us what I wanna argue today, the model for Jesus' mission, the motive for Jesus' mission, and the mandate for Jesus' mission. I was raised charismatic, so you've gotta have alliteration if you're a charismatic preacher. (laughs) Old habits die hard sometimes. So the first, the model, in verse 35, we are told that Jesus is on the move, that he is moving from city to city, from village to village. And he is teaching and proclaiming this gospel of the kingdom. He's teaching in their synagogues. We're told also that he is healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus here becomes our model for ministry and that he holds those two things that we like to divorce together, both proclamation and power, word and deed. Or as Frederick Bruner, one of my favorite New Testament commentators, calls it heralding and healing. Jesus is showing and telling the world here in Matthew's Gospel what it looks like under the reign of God. That's the model. And so for us as the church, we are at our best when we are committed to both. But for my lifetime and for much of certainly the church's history, we've kind of careened back and forth between those two poles. At one moment, it's all about proclamation. It's all about preaching. It's all about centrality of the Gospel. And then it careens to the other side and it's all about justice and mercy and social transformation. Is our primary work gospel proclamation or healing through justice and mercy? If we're to look at the model of Jesus here in Matthew's gospel, it is both. And we, his followers must be committed to both proclamation and power through healing. Verse 36, Jesus gives us his motive, why he does this work, why he's come to do this work, why we must be committed to both of these things. Matthew tells us that Jesus saw the crowds and the sense there is that he he looked intently, he gazed at the crowds, fixed his attention on them and his response is compassion. Literally his heart goes out to them, his heart moves towards the crowds. He feels pity and sympathy for these people because we're told they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The implication being that their leaders, going back to Ezekiel 34, the shepherds of Israel have failed to do their job and they've grown fat while the sheep have suffered. Jesus' motive for mission is compassion. He both sees people and he shows compassion to them. He knows that they're helpless, just as the Lord heard the cries of his children in Israel, the slaves, it rose to his ears, Exodus tells us, and he said, I will come down to them. That's the motivation for Jesus' mission in the world. God saw the world and loved the world and sent Jesus to come. Author Steve Garber um, has written a book called Visions of Vocation. Some of you are probably familiar with it, but in that book, Dr. Garber argues that the primary task of any vocation, of stepping into any place in the world, of just working for the common good, having a a mind towards the world, begins with a willingness to see the world as it is, to truly see, to not let it brush by, but to see people as they are, not just as projects or problems or sinners or liberals or the woke or whatever it is that you want to look at and see. He sees people and he has compassion. That is what animates the mission of Jesus and that's what must animate our mission as God's people. So having established both the model and the motive, chapter 10 transitions where Jesus gives them some very specific instructions. He gives them a mandate and most of these are warnings against, these are warnings against distractions from their mission. Chapter one, or chapter 10, verse one, he calls his 12 disciples to him, gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, gives them authority to heal every disease and every affliction. That should sound familiar. It's the exact phrase that's describing Jesus in 935. Matthew wants to make it clear that the mission of the apostles is the mission of Jesus. It looks like Jesus' mission. Then in verse 2, Matthew lists all the names of the disciples. And it's the only time, in fact, in his gospel that he uses this phrase, apostles, the sent ones. The ambassadors, he is sending them out as ambassadors of the living God. It's incredible, it's precious. It even sounds maybe impressive in one hearing. But it's interesting if you read the early church commenting on this passage, they're struck by the fact that these guys are unimpressive. John Chrysostom says, what kind of people are these? Fishermen and publicans and one of them was a traitor. These he sent, Jerome commented that they probably needed the miracles Jesus empowered them to do because they were so unremarkable. Jesus' mission is not contingent on us being impressive or remarkable. And far from that, in fact, being impressive or remarkable can actually be a hindrance to mission. We'll talk more about that in a section, in a second. This is good news for us. The next portion of Jesus' mandate in verse five, Jesus encourages them to go not to the Gentiles yet, not to the nations yet. That will come. Matthew obviously ends his gospel by sending them with this great commission to preach and teach and disciple and baptize all nations. But here he says, don't be distracted, be focused. This first movement of the story of salvation is sent to the lost sheep of the children of Israel. Focus on that. And as you go, he says, proclaim that the kingdom of heaven has come near, God's rule and God's reign has come near. And so enact that, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons but go to the lost sheep of Israel. Go to my people who know and have a framework for my redemptive story. Those who are looking for a prophet like Moses to be raised up. Those who have expectations for a suffering servant who would bear the sins of his people, go to them and they will be the ones that go tell the story to the ends of the earth. Next portion of Jesus' mandate to them, calls them to a life of simplicity. Mission demands that we travel light. Freely you've received, he says, freely give. Acquire no money, no gold, no copper, no silver. Don't bring a bag, don't bring more than one tunic. Don't bring sandals, don't bring a staff. The labor is worthy of his food. The implication there meaning that as you go, you will find worthy people. We'll talk about that in a second. And they will meet your basic needs. This sounds pretty radical. Commentators have wrestled with it. And like any hard passage in the scriptures, we want to let ourselves off the hook, right? He probably didn't mean that. You can't go on mission without sandals, right? You don't want to walk barefoot. But the consensus I think is that we should hear this as a warning. We should hear this as a reminder of how serious a threat money and accumulation are to our mission. And that's probably never been more obvious, right? Nothing has brought more damage to the witness of the church and the witness of Jesus in my lifetime and probably throughout the history of the church than the pursuit and the misuse of money. There are multiple big budget documentaries airing right now that talk about this problem. It's a sad story. Mission of Jesus demands that we take this seriously that we pursue and seek to live as those who are simple, to not get caught up in the gods of our age, of accumulation. And this is difficult, right? You live in Dallas, I live in Charleston, both very affluent places, nice places to live. It's just in the air all around us. And mission can demand things, right? Mission demands a building, I think. Maybe not, it doesn't in some places, but we need these things. We need buildings, we need staff. We need children's areas that are not disgusting. My church is uh, over 200 years old. And right now we need to raise $3.5 million so our portico doesn't fall into the street. You guys need permanent space, right? It's not cheap, I hear, in the Dallas commercial market. A million an acre, is that what she said? It's not cheap. Yet we, each of us, should hear this call and personally and corporately as a body, remember that the pursuit and accumulation of things and money can be a distraction. It can damage our mission. Finally, Jesus tells them when you go into a city, you need to expect that there will be people that will receive you and that there will be people that reject you. And if you find someone who's worthy, stay there throughout your mission, greet them with peace, and if they receive you, your greeting of peace, of shalom, will rest upon that house. And if they are not worthy, if they reject your message, then you should shake your dust off the feet. Jewish people did that when they came from Gentile country, they would shake their dust as a symbol of judgment and distinction. Jesus says that the judgment on that place that has had the kingdom proclaimed to it, that has had healing and deliverance proclaimed to it, the judgment will be worse than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's serious. Jesus prepares his people though for a spectrum of responses. He, he encourages them to be realistic. He actually continues in chapter 10 and gives them more expectations for suffering, that they will be dragged into courts, that they will be sent out like sheep among wolves. But Jesus also seems to assume that God is going before them, that the Spirit is going before them, working, moving, opening hearts, That's the way the gospel goes forth. And those who are receptive hear that message, that message of peace between God and people. Shalom. Jesus tells them to expect rejection, but rejection or suffering or persecution or martyrdom will not stop the kingdom. Stanley Hauerwas, as the kingdom, it seems, grows through rejection. Jesus can promise his followers that they will experience rejection because he knows and will tell them that he himself will experience rejection. He knows that his message that he's proclaiming, his rule that he is enacting, and his very self, his very person will be rejected by humanity. He will be cast out he will be harassed and mocked. He will be helpless. Not just a lost sheep, but a slaughtered sheep. He will be one who is so marred and beyond recognition that people will hide their faces from him. The one who sees the crowds and has compassion will be hidden. People will hide their faces. He will not be shown compassion. so he can love those who never receive compassion. He suffers with us and he suffers for us. On the cross, we know that it is the wounding of Jesus that actually brings about the full healing of humanity in the world. Rejection will come, but rejection will not stop the love of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus and the healing of Jesus for the sake of the world. So just a couple things that I wanna leave you with this morning. Some things to think about as you go into your week. The first is that Jesus seems to really warn against distractions from mission. And so I would maybe ask you, what are those things that distract you from the mission of Jesus? To your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your friends, to your family. I know what they are for me. I think probably busyness is up at the top. Busyness makes me go at a pace where I never see anything. You know that thing where you leave work and you don't remember how you got home? That's how I live my life sometimes. I don't actually see people that Jesus is putting in my path to speak words of life and encouragement and love and compassion. I don't see because I'm too busy. And the second I think probably is true for all of us. I said earlier, but just the pursuit of things, the accumulation We gotta have security. We've gotta have a house. We gotta have another house. We need a new car. All those things can distract us from the mission of Jesus. What are those for you? Second is that if we believe the words of Jesus in chapter nine, the best single thing that we can do for mission is pray. And I don't like that very much. I like to do, I wanna jump in, I wanna take action and do something right now. But Jesus says that we're to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers, workers into the vineyard, into the fields. And so I'd encourage you this week, find something, write it down and pray for mission this week. Pray for missionaries that you're connected. I think y'all interviewed a nonprofit person last week. Pray for them. Pray for St. Bart's, pray for your neighbors, pray for Alpha and the ways that the gospel goes forth. Spend some time this week praying for laborers. And then finally, just a, a word of encouragement. Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest because it is his harvest. The harvest is not ours, the harvest is God's. We are just workers. My wife spent hours this spring planting amazing vegetables. And I just go out there and I just collect the things that are falling off the vine and eat them. That's my harvest time. Jesus just needs workers, friends. Not entrepreneurs necessarily, not thought leaders, not strategists, just simple workers to carry the fire of his Holy Spirit to our friends and to our neighbors. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you thanks that you have loved us, that you've seen us in our helpless state and you didn't turn away, but you came, pursued us, gave your life to bring about the healing of the nations. And we ask now that as we go into the world this week that we would remember that you are on mission that this mission is yours ultimately, and that you invite us to share in that. So I pray that we would set aside distractions, fix our eyes on you, Jesus, and love and heal our neighbors to the ends of the earth. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.